26, August, a Monday, dawned calm and slightly misty. Then the mist melted in the hot sun, and it was a pleasure to be abroad. The lock was flawless and seemed to stretch away to infinity. I kept a sharp lookout from first light onwards and continued to watch through breakfast. Just after 9.30, Mrs. Pickett came out into the sunshine and started washing the dishes. The prospect of a chat, after the boring hours of watching, was too good to miss. That is the only logical reason I can give for walking 50 yards over the grass, leaving cameras and binoculars behind me, to talk to the pickets. Standing in front of the tent, I found myself staring over Mrs. Pickett's shoulder. A large black object was plowing through the water along the opposite shore. It was moving from right to left, and even at a mile range, it looked enormous. It was undulated into three connected humps, and the white foam streaming back from the leading portion was set off by its intense blackness. I stared at this spectacle for about two seconds without speaking. The experience seemed curiously unreal, and I remember registering the idea that I might be suffering some form of hallucination. Pointing, I said, Can you see that? As Mrs. Pickett turned to look, her husband and a couple of the children came out of the tent. All of them saw the object, shouting, Watch it while I get the camera. I raced across the grass. But the instant my hand touched the camera, Mrs. Pickett exclaimed, Oh, it's gone down. And so it had. The binoculars showed only a great patch of swirling water laced with foam. Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name's Jay, and I am joined by the submerged duo, Nick and Rory. (laughs) Stop drowning. This is my moment. Oh, hello. (laughs) On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. Oh my fucking God. Yeah, it's it's been a minute. I can finally breathe again. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's it, those who don't know. I mean, Jay was waterboarding us for several months straight while we prepared to record this. It's true. Yep. I, I can confirm that this is in fact true. Yep, I don't know who's been doing my job or sleeping next to my wife, but it's a doppelganger made of made of trash and scarecrow hay. Maybe it's just who you are right now. Listen, oh, God, which one's real? Listen, <laughs> new Nick has been taking wonderful care of Kelsey and uh, like a Rick Sanchez clone. He will just 
allow himself to melt when mm. you're ready to go home after this recording. I see. I see. Oh, I'm going to get to go home? Yeah, you're, you're yeah. I'm I'm done with you. I got the data <laughs> I needed. Ah, ah, good. Okay. So <laughs> been a while. Uh and uh you know, we're a little rusty, but that's okay. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we're back in the swing of it. We got and we got a cu- several months of really interesting stuff planned for you guys. Mm-hmm. 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 We got a new studio dog. His name is Hopscotch, and he's a handsome devil. He is a handsome devil. He's staring into my soul. Yes, because he currently cannot be trusted uh, to be on his own in the house, because he is—he gets up to mischief. Oh, God, he gets up to so much mischief. He likes to pull prizes out of the couch, and by prizes, I mean the stuffing from the cushions. <laughs> <laughs> he's redecorating. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, he's got that big puppy energy. Big puppy energy. He's no, a, get away from my apple. He is, uh, two, what, two, just turned two years old, and, uh, he was a stray prior to being in the shelter, and you can tell that he didn't, uh, either have enough time with his mom or something, because he is still very much a puppy, and that's okay. We love him anyway. Yep, we, so we have a new Noctivigant cryptid. Yeah. But you know what? He's not. The Loch Ness Monster. What are we talking about today, Jay? We are talking about Serpents of the Sky, Dragons of the Earth by F.W. Holiday, also sometimes billed as Ted Holiday. Um, he is a he is an English journalist. He passed away in the eighties, right? I'm looking, but yeah, um, yeah. no, he's he's one of the golden oldies, and we we definitely got in the Wayback Machine for uh for this this episode, the Wayback Machine. Yep. He's also the author of The Goblin Universe and several other books that if you've been in this community for any length of time, you've heard you've heard talk about. And we are going to have to do The Goblin Universe. I know I I'm I I got through Crypto Terrestrials, which was another posthumously published book. So we can we yeah, we can get through The Goblin Universe. Yeah, I've just I've just heard it's um challenging. Yeah, that's yeah. what that's what I've heard. Overwhelming is it's it's a challenging book, yeah, filled with challenging ideas. But that said, they were challenging when the book came out. I mean, we're already the topics we like to talk about are already kind of on the edge of the edge. Yeah, yeah. So it might not be that weird for us. Oh, they all come from some other universe, and they're shapeshifters who come here. It's like, okay, Keel, we got this. We 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 understand what's happening. Yeah, I guess it'll just it just depends on like. For at this point, for us, it's just gonna pre- it's gonna depend on how they present their idea. Yeah. My, you know, my understanding it, it can't be too weird. My understanding is it's largely just you swap the word extraterrestrial. Oh, sorry, not actually. You swap the word ultra terrestrial for goblin. You're done. I mean, so it's similar to this book in a lot of ways, where you swap UFO for dragon in yeah. some aspects of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's kind of the long and short of it, listeners, is it starts out as being a book about the Loch Ness Monster and similar sort of large eelish things found in other lakes and lochs. And it slowly progresses to just kind of looking at the general concept of dragons or giant water serpents in myth in general and it slowly evolves into holiday kind of uh yeah. well his thesis statement for this book is is basically that humanity's oldest religion was disc good dragon bad and yeah we're going to we're going to talk about that that yeah. is the point of the show yep. yep we feared loch ness monster we loved the ufo's 
Hmm. Huh. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. So, uh, but I guess before we dive in, as we have been uh, trying to do, we, uh, to mention what is the, the book that we'll be doing next after this one. So, obviously, this month, the month of February, we are going to be covering a uh, holidays book here. And then next month, if you want to buy the book and get ready to read or read ahead of time as we are reading the book this month, we are going to be reading Adam Barry's new book. Is it Goodbye, Hello or Hello, Goodbye? I think it's Goodbye, Hello. We can't be expected to remember the titles right? of the books we're reading. Uh, goodbye, Hello, there Processing Grief and Understanding Death Through the Paranormal by Adam Barry. Adam Barry being the other half of a Kindred Spirits TV show, and we covered uh, uh, Amy Bruni's book quite a while ago. And this one just recently came out at the end of last year, end-ish of last year. So it has been a long time coming that this was pretty much destined to happen. So we're going to cover it next yeah. month. We're going to read it. So we're reading it this month. So if you want to pick it up and read along with us, go ahead. Otherwise, uh, the episodes will be out next month. And if you're someone who wants to aim even further ahead, our March book is going to be Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica by RD6 Killer Clark. All right. So are we ready to get into it? I am. All right. All right. Let's... uh. Yeah, let's let's crack into this old and looks like it was printed off of my computer book. In the first chapter of Holiday's book, the late journalist tells us what it is he intends to prove, namely that the monsters sighted in Loch Ness and other bodies of water in Great Britain are in some form or another real, and furthermore that they are linked to an ancient transcontinental religion that worshiped sacred flying discs. Please don't turn off the episode. <laughs> Holiday intends to prove the former through eyewitness accounts, analysis of ancient primary sources, and early modern secondary sources, and through hard scientific data. The latter he intends to prove through analysis of ancient art and myth, and through criticism of opposing academic theories and consensus. To provide us with some groundwork on Nessie, he gives us a summary of the recent history of this multi-generation monster hunt. In 1933, when Holiday himself was 12 years old, the infamous photograph was captured. Often labeled a log or some sort of costume or dummy by debunkers, the photo remains highly convincing to many people and set off a bit of a craze. The Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau was founded in 1961 and set up cameras at various vantage points to try and capture clearer photographic evidence. For a while... The project held a reasonably respected status, attracting names with genuine clout in the academic world, and the solar results were quite promising. Startlingly large and swift objects were recorded as rising very rapidly from some of the deepest parts of the loch and seemed to move about with agency and even purpose. One such observation occurred in 1968 by a team from Birmingham University who observed not one but two such objects on their sonar. But we've never been good at making water talk to us, and by 1971, Loch Ness had yet to give up anything concrete. The project folded in 1977. According to the UK National Archives, Encyclopedia.com says 1972. But by that point, Loch Ness research was a field fueled by bitterness and conflict, wholly in the realm of cryptozoology. 
And Holiday thinks that's because we came at this from the wrong angle. You see, in 1933, when that famous photograph was being taken, Holiday was doing some interesting reading. The then 12-year-old Holiday was learning that tales of water monsters and horse eels could be found all over the British islands, growing across them like Dog Rose and Betany. And it seemed that these aquatic dragons could swim the seas as well, because he found similar myths in other cultures, in Sumeria and China and the Americas. Despite this, no one in the modern day seemed interested in mining those myths for possible answers, an oversight he compares to the ones made in the matter of UFOs. Here he cites Amy Michelle, a French ufology writer who posited that Medellian cave art depicts UFOs, which are often shown as flying silver discs. Later, in the Mesolithic era, a motif of zigzag lines arose. In modern schools of thought, these lines are seen as being in connection with representative of snakes. Holiday asserts that these zigzags are, in fact, the dragons of Bronze Age legend. Furthermore, these dragons and the flying discs are deeply interconnected and form mankind's oldest religion. Chapter 2 is called Sonar and a Sighting. Before we dive into its depths, I must double back to mention Holiday's personal sightings of our draconic neighbor. He's had three of them. Yeah. One in 1962 and two within a single week in 1965. This is important context because Holiday gets quite passionate about this subject and we must remember that for him it was personal. Personal enough that his frustrated hate mail to the New York Zoological Society persuaded Nixon Griffith, director of the New York Aquarium, to actually send somebody to Loch Ness. The man was called Robert E. Love, and he concluded that sonar remained their best option. His first experiment with it would be conducted in 1969. But first, Holiday was due for a few more brushes with the dark and watery. In 1968, busy year for Loch Ness, Holiday returned for the yearly pilgrimage he'd been making since seeing Nessie twice in 1965. Once again, he saw the creature twice. Both times, it was at a distance, an impossibly large shape beneath the water. It was in one of the rare parts of the lock that was not, at the time, completely littered with cameras. During the second sighting, the creature dove the instant he touched his own camera. Others nearby had gotten better looks at the thing. A 19-year-old filling station employee saw two massive humps, the curves of an eel-like giant, breaching out of the water, but no photographs were taken. Holiday finds himself musing on the 13th century poem in which the hero declares that the dragon Dremrud cannot be looked at long enough to be understood, and wonders yet again if the old stories are true. In September of 1969, while Holiday conducted a parallel investigation, the man does not quit. <laughs> Love and his crew methodically worked their boat back and forth across this overgrown puddle that confounds us so. Their sonar beeped away, dutifully looking for anything of interest, and on October the 10th, something of great interest indeed occurred. Like the objects pinged by the good folks from Birmingham, it moved fast, was awfully large, and through things like pulling up alongside the boat and swimming in tight loops at the edge of their sonar range, signaled to the researcher that there was some sort of mind behind its movements. Yet another 1969 investigation took a more aggressive approach and trawled the bottom of the lake with gigantic nets, like they were searching Boston Harbor for a dead cheerleader. <laughs> Why a cheerleader specifically? I don't know. 
Just that, that's what was in your soul when you were writing it, just dead cheerleader? That's just such a common true crime victim where everyone's like, we got to troll the whole harbor. We got to shut down every bridge in and out of the city. A pretty girl is dead. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway, call that big-ass eel Jimmy Hoffa because we ain't got no body, just empty nets. No body, no crime. No body, no crime. No body, no cryptid. <laughs> It was around this time that Holiday began to wonder about a new approach. At the time, he too was convinced of the need for a corpse, or at least part of one. Maybe Loch Ness was too big. Ireland, however, has just as many tales of dragons and much smaller, shallower lakes. And that's going to lead us into discussion question number one. So I'd like to start us off by asking a question that's a bit meta. Holiday opens the book with a thesis statement, and we'll be using the rest of the book to argue his stance. So when it comes to a book of this nature, what's your rubric for grading it? What makes a strong, convincing argument for you? Hmm. That's a good question. Because honestly, I don't, I don't have a good answer for this question, and the reasoning being... That everything, the, the, the ultimate answer is on, all, or the ultimate like thing about all of this is that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't know anything. And we have very little evidence of everything, you know, including what we have the most evidence about, that being UFOs. Yeah. Right? And even that, so much of it is circumstantial. So much of the evidence is second, third, fourth hand. We have very little in the way of quote unquote credible. Uh, 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 first-hand sightings, there's a lot of it. Yeah. There actually is quite a lot. But whether or not that can be used to make a convincing argument comes down to the credibility of the, the witness in question. So my rubric, honestly, like, it's so case-to-case. It's so topic-to-topic uh, to topic because it, uh, a lot of it will come down to what do we, what is... How are they presenting the evidence to me? Are they presenting this to me? So like with this one, are they presenting it to me with, uh, with, are they trying to show me scientifically that this exists? Or are they trying to explain to me something that is more spiritual in nature? Yeah. Um, through, the len- through the lens or through the guise of something like Bigfoot, something like the Loch Ness Monster, something, you know, like a cryptid, whatever it might be. So it really comes down to how are, what are they trying to, how are they trying to explain it to me or what is ultimately their goal out of this? So he presents his thesis statement of essentially saying something to the extent of UFOs are the oldest religion, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what, that's what we're defining? UFOs and dragons specifically. Yeah. So my... Like how I'm going to determine this is then how I mean the the answer he's trying to get to here is theological in nature. So then I expect something that is going to have a combination of both theological research and anthropo- anthropological research because context matters, you know. So that is going to end up being how I'm going to look at uh, like this book. Is I'm going. He, his ultimate goal is something that seems to me 
to be not scientific in nature necessarily, but theological in nature. So then I want to look at it with a theological lens, if yeah. that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. That was a good answer. Um, I, I mean, very similarly, I think one thing about books like this, very seldom am I going into any books we do on this show um, grading it in terms of how much did it convince me. I, I tend to grade the books more on how useful is this, does this feel to me in the sense of uh, furthering along my own efforts to understand all this. Yeah. And, and so, like, because I'm not looking to be convinced because I, the one thing I am fairly convinced of is that nobody knows, you know, the full picture. Agreed. So, um, that, that said, I will say this. this. There are certain books which obviously we know we, we've read and uh, listeners of our show know that we, uh, we came to the determination they were not useful. Uh, <laughs> Alien New World Order, uh, Flat Earth or Earth, Flat Atlantis mm-hmm. by Eric Dubay. Uh, which just saying it makes me shiver. There are uh, a lot of books in that lens that we like that we may have even enjoyed, but ultimately didn't yeah. move us further along, like fringology. Right. Outside of like m- minor little sections, you know. Right. Um, I will say this: this book, though, uh, unlike those, it falls into this very murky gray area for me, where if I just take this book and I read it as someone who isn't well studied in Bronze Age culture and religion. I read this and I see his argument that like ah uh, the initial the 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 discs that archaeologists thought were suns that make him think they were sun worshippers those were really UFOs and this uh, stell and this engraving on this church is showing a serpent in this context it means this and all of that comes makes him come across like he is very well researched about all this however the fact is that this is the only book I've read dedicated to Bronze Age culture so I have no nothing to fact check it against. So I don't know if the argument, like, I, I think he forms his arguments convincingly, but I also am aware that I am not armed with enough information to be actively checking this as I read it. Yeah, the biggest, uh, my big, one of my biggest complaints, and this is a complaint that we've had about a lot of books of this nature, mm-hmm. um, is that I agree he presents a lot of his arguments uh, very well. The problem is that he doesn't really provide evidence for his argument. In a lot of ways, he provides his theory, like uh, with Stonehenge, for example, that we'll get to. He provides his theory, but he also makes a slip up in there uh, as an example where he says that we don't know why Stonehenge was made. We have assumptions. That's not necessarily true. That depends on who you ask. If you ask people who have studied things like Druid culture throughout the years of that, they'll tell you exactly why Stonehenge is there. Yeah. And it actually lines up with things that he said. Yeah. Because things like eclipses and the sun and the moon are huge in Druid culture. And that's a big part of why Stonehenge was made the way that it was. Because, and it's still used to this day by Druids for religious, cer- for, for, uh, for religious ceremonies. So, like, there are things like that that are right there in front of you. And it, was, it seemed to be neglected. Well, and along that line, I think one of the weaknesses that I'd say about this book on a similar uh, line of thinking is that, okay, so this is, this goes back to, uh, so I taught freshman composition at college when I was in, in my graduate program. And one of the things that we often talked about, that was just part of the lesson plan, was that when you're making an argument, it is often not, not just necessary, but uh, well, it is often necessary to also make an argument for the point you're arguing against. Yes. And the reason is, is like he goes in this book, 
he says, okay, our archaeologists initially dug into these burrows and they found these discs and they, they thought they were the sun. So they said they're sun worshipers and that has guided our entire understanding of Bronze Age religion. But they're not. They're UFOs. And then he goes into his, ide- his supporting evidence for why they're UFOs. But in order for that to matter to me, I need him to also show me why they thought they were sun worshipers. Yeah, maybe that's the kind of the point that I was getting at is it's, it just seemed so weighted. Yeah, it, it, it's, yeah. I mean, it, it, it really it felt like one of those books where, well, I'm sure that, you know, weirdos like us are in the intended audience. I, I, I feel like if order in order for me to have actually fully grappled with this book and been able to break it down, I would need to be uh, I need to be a history professor. I would need to have a good, solid background and knowledge about this, because this doesn't seem like here is a crash course on this topic and how I interpret it. It's just the latter half. And without that necessary contextual information, it becomes very difficult to judge the contents. Yeah, no, I agree, because there's even stuff that like is like tangentially related to things that I have studied, but he touches on topics or uh, subject matter that I haven't studied myself. So I sit there and I go, it sounds right, but I don't know with any certainty. So he makes a good argument, but I'm too aware of my own ignorance to buy it. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of in that realm of like, I am one quarter of a theologian. I have a bachelor's degree. I never did that as like a full as as a career. I never did that professionally. I've never been published in that field. But there were several things that he said throughout this book that I immediately went, "Okay, I don't know how that's not true. I would have to like go and look shit up to be able to remind myself why what he was saying was inaccurate. But there were, especially towards like the last four or five chapters of the book, there were some things where I was like, oh, that's not, oh, that's not true. Oh, that's really, that's just really not true. Like, and the problem is, uh, is those, those, those points that he were making that I was able to even just like checking sources that were linked in Wikipedia, being able to check like, oh, this, this isn't true. We have a very large academic consensus refuting this with a lot of peer reviewed research behind that refutation. Like that was kind of a load bearing point. And so it's like that it's like the entire argument ends up on very shaky grounds because it's like Mr. Holiday, I now have to doubt all of your research because like to, to a slight spoiler, his his descriptions of the alleged snake cult in Rome, it's like that is incredibly inaccurate when you place it within the context of what was actually like the actual cultural context of that that cult that was around for a couple of centuries like i now have to doubt the rest of his argument because even surface level research refutes the statements he was making there yeah and uh like there's a lot of um christian bias in the theology and this is where like it's a lot of i am well read in my bible and therefore i can make these assumptions based on xyz because i've you know spent time in a church pew and i know how to interpret the bible according to christianity but that's 
at times where it feels like it stopped. Right. I, yeah. I, I, I will say it did. I did occasionally get the feeling. I, I'll say it, it's not nearly as egregious as many books we've read. Uh, I, I enjoyed this book for the most part. I will say there oh, were me too, yeah. a couple instances where it definitely felt more like he made was making the mistake of starting with a conclusion and then working backwards. He uh, he definitely was with, with especially with some of the some of the ancient Sumerian stuff of it was like, dude, this is just not we 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 have better translations of these texts now and we have a better cultural understanding of what was going on with these people and yeah all right so do we feel like we've gotten the most we can out of that question yeah i think so i mean like on the whole i enjoyed the book i enjoyed his argument i can't say i'm convinced um and i i just have the I just have the bad feeling that if we had more expertise on Bronze Age culture and religion, this book would feel a lot weaker than it did. And, but, but that said, I also have to point out this book was published in the early 70s. It's possible a lot of the issues like with Sumerian culture, those things you were pointing out, Jay, were simply not known then. Uh, I, I don't know when those discoveries were made. That's that's probably a big part of it. Um, archaeology is like any other science. It's had really big advances over the last several decades, and there's a bunch of shit that we... Like, uh, like uh, Tr- uh, Rory, I was talking to you about this a while ago, about the whole, oh, King Tut's tomb cursed mm-hmm. those people, and now in modern-day Egyptologists are like, that's a basic fucking protection tar- charm, dumbass. It can't actually hurt you. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's just, it's basically a keep out sign in hieroglyphics. Calm down. Like, even with that, like, we've learned, like, a lot in terms of, like, how to adjust our thinking when it comes to some of these ancient cultures because a lot of times we we prescribe these ideas on these ancient cultures as if they were the same as we are today and there are things about our lives today that would absolutely baffle ancient cultures because concepts like it didn't exist for example marriage as we know it today is not like what marriage would have been like thousands and thousands of years ago. It was a completely different thing, and it was done for completely different reasons. Yeah. Yep. Everybody in the ancient world would have thought it weird that you and I got married because we loved each other, not because it was going to be an advantageous land deal for our fathers. Exactly. Yeah, I think that I think that was it. I just wanted to get that last, uh, I guess, summary point out. And we're gonna we're gonna re we're gonna revisit. Um, basically, we're going to be basically be revisiting the question of how well is he doing with his argument a couple of times throughout this summary because, you know, it, because so much of this hinges on, you know, unlike the rest, a lot of the other facets of ufology, this is concrete stuff we can look at, these ancient cultures and their writings and their temples. So a couple of times we're in later questions, we're going to be revisiting like how is he doing with his argument so okay i'm ready all right all right this brings us to chapter three in which we're introduced to a key figure and key setting for the rest of this book captain leslie and the irish provenance of connaught the irish provenance of can't just can't do it. Just because I've studied studied aspects of Irish culture doesn't mean I can say their words. In fact, 
I've made a point of saying that I am terrible at saying these words. I'm terrible at saying these words too. So, but I would say it's probably something like Knoch. Knoch. Yeah, something Cap- like that. Captain Leslie in the Irish province of Knoch. <laughs> the captain was an adventurer who had come to the Irish countryside and was traveling about on foot and by bicycle to gather eyewitness testimony of the water monsters. The Providence is a landscape of lakes and bogs, and the area holds an ominous reputation in early modern and medieval Irish thought. Holiday makes reference to the old soldier saying, To hell or canaw, said when one was about to charge into the throes of danger. While Holiday acknowledges the academic proposal that the saying referred to death or banishment, as Kanaw may have been a place of exile for disgraced warriors, he asks us to consider that, perhaps... Pre-modern Ireland viewed Kanaw as being somehow closer to hell. And that's fair. I fully believe Ohio is closer to hell. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on one second. Let me see what this pronunciation YouTube video says. We are looking at how to pronounce this name, as well as how to pronounce more interesting Irish names. This is the name of one of the provinces Just trying to seduce me, bud? Yeah, oh yeah. ...of the country. How do you go about pronouncing it? Connacht. Connacht. Pretty straightforward. Once you know, Connacht. Connacht. Carnacht. Connacht. Okay, it's not straightforward, dude. If we're not, we. It's it's pretty straightforward. So you know, we all immediately pronounce it differently. Yeah. Uh, maybe we're just idiots. Maybe oh, that's it. Definitely. Yeah, that's it. You know, at, which makes sense considering I've been sipping this here bleach cocktail this whole time. <laughs> put that down. You know what the doctor said. The label I put on it says it's not permanent. They said that you have to limit it to an ounce and a half a day. I think that's a year. Oh. Ounce and a half a year. <laughs> I'm going to die soon. Oh, yeah. No, our organs are slurry. Well, that's a wrap on this episode because we're going to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back from the hospital. It was through this dense scattering of lakes and bogs and the horrors of modern colonialism that Le- that Lionel Leslie valiantly rode, interviewing people such as Georgina Carberry. In 1954, Georgina and some friends witnessed a large, worm-like creature in Lou Fada. Coming as close as 20 yards, the creature had two humps and a forked tail. Afterwards, Georgina suffered nightmares for weeks. Another story that Leslie found was of two different witnesses reporting seeing a massive creature in a body of water water called Lu Anu. Anu, Anu. It's spelled A U N A. Listeners, you look it up. This beast was thirty to forty feet long, dark gray in color, and swam quite close to shore. One witness, Tommy Joyce, said that he'd heard a similar story about the Lu taking place seventy years prior. The witness to that historical encounter described the creature as looking like a horse that trailed off into an eelish body. I I, I don't know why the the it, the image of like the Loch Ness monster isn't as upsetting as that description, and I think it's just a horse that trailed off. There's something upsetting about those words together to me, and I don't know why. I don't. I really don't get it. Because trailing off is supposed to be in speech, not in body. It could also be that it reminds me too strongly of that awful Cards Against Humanity card, which is a legless horse that can't stop screaming and ejaculating. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
I didn't remember that card. I must have blocked it out. <laughs> That's what the sediment layer at the bottom of Loch Ness is. Just horse cum. Yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's an aerobatic environment. No bacteria can live in the three feet deep moat of horse cum. <laughs> These creatures. Which, does that technically make Loch Ness a milkshake? These creatures are, in addition to water horse <laughs> and paist, called horse eels. And Lionel Leslie discovered that these sightings are plentiful in Canut? <laughs> Canout? Yes, there's a lot of horse cum in the Canut. Shut up! <laughs> Canout? I can't remember anymore. Back in 1820, a writer called Thomas Crockett traveled a similar circuit and came up with a surprisingly vast collection of encounters with the horse eels, with local histories telling of sightings hundreds of years old. Lionel Leslie attempted to flush out the creatures with both explosives and big nets, but got nothing for his troubles. Meanwhile, his research was met with skepticism. Common objections included the great variance in reports of the creature's size, ranging from an itty-bitty 10 feet to a staggering 60, and to the unlikelihood of these creatures being sufficiently fed in any of the mentioned lakes, locks, or loos. In Chapter 4, Holiday follows in Leslie's footsteps and turns his focus to the Canut region. Canut? Whatever. Canut? <laughs> Canut? Canut? Fuck, Cannot. I don't remember already. Cannot region. There, Mr. Alston, the rector of Clifton, informed him of another sighting in Lao Nuhuin. A married couple and their children, the coins, witnessed the creature swim close to shore to either investigate or antagonize their dog. They sized it at approximately 12 feet, described a worm or eel-like body with two humps, a flat tail, a pole-like head and neck, and a pale interior to its mouth. Mr. Coyne stated that it had horns and that it patrolled the lake for a long time afterwards. Since then, the family avoided the loo, often inconveniencing themselves to do so, seeing as they live basically next to it. Joined by a random duke and by Georgina Carberry, Gigi, you, you, do not, you are not a final girl. You, you don't have to go back and fight the monster. You don't have to keep doing this. Yes, she does. She just keeps showing up. She's like, I want to help. It's like, go home. It traumatized you. Uh, holiday descended upon the scene. Like an angry Jesus. <laughs> Lunahuan was connected to many other bodies of water via small streams, several of which Holiday also went and observed. Something about Lufada in particular deeply unsettled him. For Nahuin, the crew decided to pursue a netting operation. After all, it was much smaller than Loch Ness. Fewer places for anything eelish to hide. While preparations were made, Holiday was able to collect other eyewitness testimony and a historical account. Tom Connolly reported that many years before, he'd seen a creature down in a nearby loo. He estimated that it was between 12 and 14 feet long and described it as velvety and eel-like and said it bobbed up and down in the water for roughly an hour before disappearing. The historical account is said to have occurred 80 years back. That's 80 years prior to the writing of this book. A large eel-like creature became stuck in a culvert. With the locals unwilling or unable to help it, it eventually died. In regards to its bones, the local conveying the story said it melted away, possibly meaning decayed. 
possibly meaning something else. Prior to the netting operation, both Holiday and a team member, Ivor, fell ill with odd, intermittent symptoms. Exhaustion, aches, insomnia, and throbbing toothaches came and went for the duration of the netting operation, which was dogged with bad luck. Their buoys, for example, were somehow dragged underwater at night. There was no body or living specimen to be found in Lu Nahuan. Holiday pauses to reflect on how the Lu's trout population could not possibly feed a creature the size of a crocodile, but at this time remains convinced that something eelish lurked in those ancient waters. And months later, he read something interesting in Sir E.A. Wallace Budge's Babylonian Life and History. In a translation of a Babylonian text concerning their culture's creation myth, the worm, capital T, capital W, is given dry bones and scented wood to eat, but the worm demands to instead drink the, ble- the blood of the teeth and gums in order to make them weak. Holiday thought of the agony in his mouth as he camped beside Lake Nahuan. In Chapter 5, undeterred by blood-drinking worms and accident-prone super-eels, Holiday returns to the west coast of Ireland. He also makes direct comparisons to the old dragon tales of this region and modern encounters, and draws our attention to all their similarities. We're also made privy to something that Mr. Alston, the rector, said in regards to these myths, namely that medieval Irish sculpture depicts dragons as horse-face, and often with eel tails, and that they were creatures of heaven, earth, and river water. A recent eyewitness account had them attempting to drag Nahuan again, but the lake's lilies stopped them. But nearby residents didn't let them leave empty-handed. An elderly local stated that, many years ago, a drought trapped some such beast underneath a bridge. The 30-foot-long eel horse was terrifying to locals, and there were plans to kill it with a spear. But a sudden downpour allowed it to flee. Martin Walsh, another local, said that if regional legend is to be believed, the horse eels try to return to the sea if they're ill, which is intriguing given Holiday's question of whether or not these creatures could be born in the sea, migrate inland via the stream networks, and then mature in the lakes. Finally, a man called Patrick Canning gave an interesting testimony. The elderly army vet stated that 15 years prior, he'd gone looking for a wandering donkey of his and saw it down by the shore of the Lou. Through the day's mist, he saw something black and foal-like circling the animal. He thought it was a donkey or a baby horse until it darted into the water to avoid him. Canning further stated that his older friends and family had seen such things many more times than he, and that there used to be more of such creatures in Ireland. And that's going to move us into discussion question number two. All right. Yeah. In later years, Holiday will move away from a materialist view of the water horses and begin to view them as distinctly non-physical animals. Uh, We're actually going to see that transition in this book. In the past, we favored similar schools of thought, you know, vis-a-vis these things probably aren't physically real. But so far, we've heard two different historical accounts of the creatures becoming trapped. Putting on our believer caps, how do we square these stories with a non-physical lens, even if that can even be done? So I'm of two schools of thought on this, and it really comes down to what is the conceptual paradigm you're looking at reality through? 
Um, if you are saying that there is a hard distinction between physicality and let's instead of saying real unreal, let's say physical and psychical. Seem fair? Um, if that's the case, I could see it being something of the like that these are somehow that paramounties are somehow psychical entities that can manifest for brief times in our world or sometimes get trapped here and hence they can't get out. So it could be a situation like that. Like it transitioned to our world and do maybe there's certain spots that allow it to transition back and forth like doorways and it couldn't get to one because it was trapped. So it died. And I, I could see something like that. I could also see, I mean, if they are, if that is the true distinction, I mean, theoretically, if the stories of crash retrievals are true, we have physical UFOs. Yet, you, yet many, many researchers, especially the ones who've been in this the longest, will, are the first to say there's something psychical about them. There's something not real about them. Um, so I could be, see it being almost something like they don't, they, 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 you know, they are not innately not physical, not part of our world, but they have to take on some physicality to interact with us. And when they do that, they make themselves vulnerable to being captured, killed, things like that. Now, there is the other paradigm that I want to bring up, which is the uh, idealist, idealist paradigm that we, we talk about pretty often on this show, in that what if you go kind of beyond? Everything is mental, which means that this room is mental. We are mental. We're thought forms. It's just that this physical world we see, it's like a computer overlay. It is a useful visual aid to help us navigate a world of ideas and thoughts and forms. Um. In that, I mean, yes, I might be a thought form, but my body, how I look, how I sound, that is the external uh, perception of the thought form that is Nick, right? So it would be a very similar thing. Yes, they are psychical, and yes, they can come and go onto wavelengths of reality that we can't see. If you're continuing the computer metaphor, uh, they have the ability to enter a folder that you're not allowed to open on your desktop, whereas your desktop is your view of this reality. So they, they can go into your heart, into an area of the hard drive where the porn and the tax returns are, where you're not allowed to go. Um, and because of that, then they can you know flip back and forth. But hey, if that file gets caught out in the open on the desktop, there's nothing stopping you from throwing it in the trash bin. You know, something, something kind of like that. So it really comes down to what is the core paradigm at play here. But I, when we're saying things are real, not real, psychical, physical, I tend to think that those distinctions are something that we, over the course of, not, not specifically us with the show, but as humans are eventually going to probably find a way to grow past and to adopt some other paradigm that's even stranger that we don't have the words to discuss right now that these things might fit better into. But that said, right now, I wouldn't see a reason why that wouldn't be possible uh, in, under either paradigm. It exists there, and it, if it comes into this world to be physically to physically interact with us here or to physically interact with this world, I wouldn't see why we wouldn't be able to physically interact back or why the natural forces of this world uh, think, you know, wildfires, entropy, why those wouldn't have an effect upon it. It Maybe in its world, it can't die. It comes here, it gets trapped. What do you mean I need food and water? Mm -hmm. I think that uh, I don't, like disagree with any with what you were necessarily saying when uh, when you're going through the those worldviews. Uh, that being said, as I've expressed to you, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about on this sh on the show, I just have some personal struggles with aspects of the uh, the idealist yeah. philosophy as a whole. Well, I mean, and I think that you're correct in that. I don't. Well, I like it, and I it's a fun thought to entertain. I don't think it's complete. 
Yeah. You I know, don't think uh, the idealist philosophy is finished yet. They haven't really nailed down a core ideology involved yeah. in it. My biggest problem with it, and this is a slight tangent, but I think it's relevant, uh, is the the continued fallback by a lot of modern day people who uh, spout the idealist uh, philosophy, especially inside the UFO world, is that they are hung up on the idea uh, or hung up on the this is a simulation. And my problem with that is that we're utilizing the word simulation. This is artificial. This isn't real, but it is. We know that it is in some form real. I can knock on my desk, right? I can see the things in front of me. And I understand what you're saying, like in an idealist philosophy, that nothing is actually physical, that this is, you know, our perception of X, Y, and Z. But the problem is, is that that idea gets in the way of my reality. My reality being what's in front of me. That being said, my biggest problem is that we continue to come back to the idea of it being a simulation or relating it to a computer program and things like that. And that's just, and it's simply just because to me that doesn't make sense. The, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. One, it doesn't make sense to me that we would use it, use a framework of something that we created to try and explain something that we don't understand. We understand simulations. We understand programming. We understand computers. We don't understand our own reality. And I don't think that it's a, I don't think it's a good comparison personally. Right. Well, and, and I will say also, well, I, again, like I like idealism, just like I like thinking about, we discussed on the show, quantum theory as it might relate to the phenomenon and all yeah. that stuff. Those are great ideas. And I think that there is something there worth investigating, which is why I like talking about it. But I do agree. I think that both those two things specifically, idealism and quantum theory, how they, there's a really bad habit I've noticed where anytime something about someone's personal theory about the capital P phenomenon uh, is questioned, a lot those are very easy answers to fall back on. It involves quantum mechanics. It involves yeah. an idealist philosophy. And then you can make kind of spin a pseudo argument around that because you're relying on the fact that the 99.99% of people out there have no fucking yeah. clue what's actually in idealist philosophy yes. or quantum mechanics. Yes. I barely have an idea and I've been studying it a lot. Yeah. No, I agreed. Like, like I, I've barely scratched the surface of these ideas. Like I've spent more time researching Nietzsche, Nietzsche, uh, than I have researching idea idealism. And I don't, believe literally any like anything that he's said i just find him fascinating similar to like alistair crowley i don't believe fucking anything that alistair crowley uh like i don't believe in any of his worldview but i mountain climbing lunatic but anyway to, to to come back to the actual question at hand uh, how do we square the stories uh with a non-physical uh theoretical lens um and i think if these creatures are you know, think like UFOs, you, you know, we've seen this seeming ability for a UFO to go bl to blink itself in and out of our reality, right? It's, we've seen him, you know, go speeds, quote unquote, that could, couldn't possibly be done or appear instantaneously somewhere else after being in one location and then they're somewhere else miles and miles away. I, I, I if we... I think that it's possible that that is something similar. Okay, so what if 
these creatures are something that typically they are outside of our perception. They are normally outside of the spectrum that we can see. Uh, but they have an ability, due to whatever it is that they are, to bring themselves into our spectrum that we can see. And when they do, they take on a physical form that either we, we think we can comprehend and or they, it's the closest that they could be to what they actually are. Um, like in it, you know, Pennywise appears as a spider because that's the closest thing that the losers' minds could could wrap their mind. Their losers' minds could witness what Pennywise is. You know that maybe it's something like that where this is just the only thing that our brain could actually perceive it as because with with what it is. So I I think that that's possible. And it gives them still a, f- a physicality. It's just not a physicality that we understand, which I think is true. I think that there is, a, you know, obviously a level to all of this that we don't understand. Like, look at uh, with some of the stories that, I, that we've gone over. They had eyewitness accounts of something popping out of the water that shouldn't be able to live inside ca- or captivity or shouldn't be able to live inside the water the way that it is, right? And then they scrape the bottom of the lock, and they find nothing. It just makes me think, uh, you know, the whole idea of, you know, that, that whole idea you were just going on about, that is the form that we could conceptualize. I mean, if you look about what a Loch Ness Monster is, basically, you know, they're called horse seals. They're, they're often described as these long, sinuous, perpetually moving things. What if they are something like what some, cult, especially animistic cultures, would deem a water spirit? So when they're here, it is the essence of water. Our brain sees a living thing, though, and can't, that is somehow the essence of water, can't comprehend that. So what's the closest animal to that? The sinuous movements mm-hmm. of an eel is water. Then when it dies, it melts. It just becomes the liquid it always was. Yeah. So what I- if they're made of water? Yeah, no, I actually think that's a really cool idea, especially like the idea that they might be a wa- like water elemental, water spirit. And here's the thing, that kind of goes in line with a lot of um uh, like a lot of like from a spiritual aspect. It goes a lot along with a lot of what I've read about some people's beliefs in these things. Yeah. You know, could be big if true. Big if true. Big if true. Just like if if true, the Loch Ness Monster is very big, um, according to the eyewitness accounts. And, uh, yeah, I, I think the only way I can square this is with the idea that they somehow move in and out of, of tangible physical reality because, yeah, I, 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 agree, I agree with all of the scientific assertions made of, like, there is no possible way that a creature this size could be feeding itself in these bodies of water and have us not notice. Like, even if it is a sediment feeder not actively feeding off of fish, it's it's gonna it's gonna produce waste. There's gonna be there there's gonna be signs if it's perpetually existing physically. Uh but you know, in in for the purposes of keeping believer caps on, we also have these this testimony of like, no, sometimes they get stuck under bridges, and I am I'm very intrigued by the idea um, that ho- you know Holiday brought up. Martin Walsh was saying that 
oh, well, when they get sick, they try to go back to the sea. It's like, were they were they sick and they couldn't phase back out of physical reality because they were ill and they were too weak to do it? Like, does that take does that take energy and effort for them? And sometimes if they're old or weak or dying or they haven't had enough fuel, whatever their fuel is, they can just get kind of stuck in that physical body and become vulnerable to things like being killed with a spear or starving to death in a culvert. And also, the past used to be insane. Like, this giant fucking magic eel from another dimension is trapped in a culvert near your town, and you're like, well, there's literally no one we can call about this, so it's, it's just going to stay there. Like, I would call the police. I would be standing there on the hillside over it on the phone with 911 being like, no, I'm not going to describe it to you because you're going to think I'm crazy or messing with you. You need to come look at this thing with your eyes and then you need to do something about it because I'm not going near it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was probably whipping its head around and biting. Well, I mean, there's not really the evidence for this. It's just a fun, a fun thought. What if they come to our world to die because they come from a spiritual realm and death is not a thing there? They come here to experience death. I mean, that was uh, that was one of the one of the cultural ideas behind changelings. Uh, for for some places, is like, oh yeah, you're a, a changeling is replaced by a very old fairy that's been put into a human body, so it can live out its last days in comfort and luxury, being waited on by an attentive human mother, and then they and then they pass away quietly and move on to whatever afterlife Faye may or may not have. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what people, like, in, in some ways, you could make the argument that that's what, like, the journey, like, our our journey is, right, is we're experiencing death, living through the cycle. What if that is, like, a god or godlike creature's version of doing the same thing? Yeah. They come down to our world to experience death and weakness so that they can better enhance their understanding of their own existence. Yeah. Neat. I like it. That's a cool theory. In Chapter 6, Holiday discusses a theory posited by Dr. Bernard Huvelmans. Huvelmans believed that the creature of Loch Ness and similar beasts were freshwater mammals and compared them to similar creatures spotted at sea. He concluded that the lake monsters were a form of long-necked eel. Holiday has some doubts and points out that water-dwelling mammals need to surface periodically to breathe, and it'd be kind of impossible to remain hidden for as long as they have if 18 times a day they need to go shooting out of the water and go, deep breath, deep breath, deep breath, and then go <laughs> back in. You know... We have whale-watching tours, sir. <laughs> These things kind of happen routinely. <laughs> Answers lacking in the biological sphere, Holiday returns to the realm of folklore. There, he finds a long chain linking Celtic folklore figures with horses, often through naming. He cites the research of Sir John Rees, who found that the Fomori, the name of Ireland's legendary sea invaders, was a, warping, was a warping of another word for giant. Seeing that Fomori were described as monsters and associated with horse heads, Reese suspected that Fomori might simply be another word for the lake monsters. Another giant of myth, the god Cernanus, 
was said to be the keeper of the horned serpent. One legendary Celtic king allegedly had horse ears, and this same trait is ascribed to one of King Arthur's knights. So, I'm not well-read on Sir Nanus. So, the the keeper of the horned serpent is probably true, but he, Sir Nanus, is typically portrayed as having stag horns. Ah. Um more like a like satyr like being than anything serpent like interesting i wonder i wonder if that's always been the case or if that it, a lot like with uh with a wendigo if that's more of a modern interpretation of how it looks well sir not in irish so here's the thing with celtic gods in general you could go from one town to the next town and they would have your god would have the exact same name, be depicted completely different, and have a completely different meaning. There's only a handful that really held to having long-standing traits. Cernanus is actually one of them. He's one of the the big ones that you know we know more about than than others because he's you know he was one of the big gods like Danu and the like, you know. Uh, so, I mean, it could be, but ultimately we have so little to go off of when it comes to Irish, uh, like, like uh, Irish mythology before you're going to be, re- well, we'd be relying completely on statues. So that's all we would have because there's not going to be any writing. Yeah. Right. They didn't do that. And then all the genocide and colonialism happened. Right, the first writing that we got of any Irish heritage or of any Irish folklore was written down by Christian monks. So, I'm I some of the stuff I'm reading, I'm starting to become more and more convinced that the thing that we now call the Morrigan is an amalgam goddess from guaranteed. Yeah, they they all are. Especially, I was reading. I have to go find this again. I was reading this one thing where it's like, oh yeah, one of the aspects of Morrigan Maka. That was likely a completely separate goddess because we're pretty sure that was a sun goddess that came from a different part of Ireland and she just got rolled into Morrigan post-Christian conquest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I said, uh, the the Cernanus is likely associated with horned serpents. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure the wiki says horned, ser- horned serpents as something that he's associated with. But like I said, it... it Typically speaking, in all of the uh, depictions that we have of him, he is with stag horns and is associated to stags. Oh, actually, looking at this one, he does have a horned, uh, he does have a serpent in his hand on one of these. But Was Cernanus ever associated with like healing and medicine? I think the c- connection between serpents and healing was more Greek. Yeah. That's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, th- that was definitely more Greek. Um, yeah. Caduceus? The Caduceus staff? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, Caduceus. Yeah. The, the, the whole, the, si- the staff you see on the front of all the hospitals. It was yeah. initially a Greek image. Yeah. yeah. I think. Yeah. It, no, it, it was, and it was initially a Greek image. Um, and at one point that, uh, at one point, there's a whole thing. I uh, but anyway, so 
giving us several pages of genuinely intriguing legends of water dragons and beastly horse eels. Holiday wonders if these tales grew from real encounters in antiquity and the medieval period. After all, they sound incredibly similar to the modern tales he's been collecting. Though they get a bit more deadly, the Burris dragon, recorded by the monk John de Hoclo in 1405, involves a gigantic lake monster killing not only livestock, but a shepherd. Bowman tried to kill it, which is fair, but the creature fled into a nearby bog and did not return. The last known official account of a dragon in the modern period was in England in 1668. The dragon of Henham was killed when a group of men attacked it with pitchforks, and I hate them all for it. Said dragon was memorialized in woodcuts, which proclaimed this good boy to have been legless and knobby-skinned and an itsy-bitsy ten feet long. A baby. They killed a baby. Once again, the legless. Just immediately goes back to that awful image. They killed a legless baby. How was a legless baby supposed to defend itself against a bunch of farmers with pitchforks? I mean, I presumably had teeth and horns. Okay, listen. Clearly, it likes sheep. And also, if it was a serpent, it would just be wiggling. Just give it. Just give it some sheep. Just give it some sheep sometimes, and it will leave you alone. I'm it sure was the sheep... hungry and confused. I'm sure the sheep would, would prefer that the farmers kill the danger noodle. Mm-hmm. Okay, the sheep are probably going to get killed for meat anyway. Maybe they were wool sheep. I mean, I absolutely not, because back then, if you raised an animal, you were going to eat it eventually, but... I'm on the baby's side. Throughout the timeline of these stories, Holiday concludes that the dragons went further west and north as Britain's population grew. This could also be due to a loss of territory and a search for resources. Human activities have reduced the water volume of many waterways the monsters would likely use, and within Holiday's lifetime, many had dried up completely. If Holiday's theory on the dragons coming in from the sea is true, they've likely been stranded. But this is a good thing, because horse seals are evil. (laughs) In Chapter 7, The Mystery of the Beaded Cross, sick adventure book title, dude, Holiday opens with this quote, The conundrum of the satanic dragon or worm has to be examined, even though there is no precedent for such a curious study. Naturalists do not look for morality in wildlife, and a bad animal is as inconceivable as a good one. Although wild creatures exhibit courage and cowardice, greed and generosity, affection and hate, it is only mankind that has turned these qualities in itself into sets of values with metaphysical attributes. It has managed to do this while still retaining its largely carnivorous diet and conducting homicide on a global scale. Small wonder that doctrinal theology falls flat on its face when leading questions are pressed home. In terms of where these dark impulses come from, he turns to the mystic Sri Govan Dinada Baharti. Baharti once told J.G. Bennett that sin originates out of a desire to enjoy life, and that's just a fucking depressing assertion. He also said that both good and evil come from inside us naturally. Growing as a person is equated, to tend- is equated to the tending of a field, pulling weeds to let the crops breathe. This leads Holiday to his next point. Good is given a living embodiment in the form of God. 
Therefore, evil needs its own embodiment. In antiquity, Holiday states, this embodiment was the dragon or the serpent. Here he points to Satan and to the Ergarit of Babylon and the Mesolithic culture of Mas de Azil. However, he fails to acknowledge the cultures that held up snakes as divine or healing creatures such as ancient Egypt or several Gnostic branches. He posits that as Christianity reached Britain, it carried the dragon symbol with it and has us consider several cross-shaft carvings which depict dragons being vanquished by Christ or bowing in worship to him. Some of these dragon carvings bear a very strong resemblance to the lake monsters in question even including their long, coiled bodies. Post-Danish invasion, these carvings grew more naturalistic, but their themes remained largely the same. Sometimes the dragons crush men beneath their bodies. Sometimes they battle God's natural animals. Sometimes they snarl over church doors as a warning of damnation. And sometimes they are there merely to be slain by saints. A depiction holiday equates to a charm, sympathetic magic to ward away evil. The Celtic cross is not exempt from this. Indeed, to Holiday's eye, the beaded circle enclosing it greatly resembles the eelish, knobby-skinned tail of Britain's dragons. Could this, he wonders, be a symbol of the balance between good and evil, the weeds and the crops? Maybe. Or maybe we're just chasing discs. Remember that story in the first chapter, the squiggly lines going up to the disc? Well, we're going back to the disc now and Holiday is going to devote chapters 8 and 9 to exploring its role in Bronze Age society. In 1966, Holiday had three different UFO sightings, two of which others were present for. One of these sightings was a cloud-like object, and the other was a massive, flattened disk moving at impossible speeds. These encounters convinced him of the phenomenon's reality, and much like the dragons, he can provide evidence of eyewitness reports going back thousands of years. We don't even have to leave Bronze Age Britain for them, and this is familiar territory to our, to our listeners. But burial mounds, on the other hand, are probably less familiar. Burial mounds in Bronze Age Britain were distinctly disc-shaped, and the grave goods they were buried with carried a similar theme. Many unearthed burial mounds contained gold or sandstone discs, a simple grave of a mother and child buried together contains several fossilized sea urchins, and Holiday posits those sea urchins were chosen for their disc shape. Many archaeologists and academics, such as Dr. Ann Ross, believe this is evidence of sun worship, but both Holiday and Sir James Fraser express doubt. James Fraser talks to the people of Swabia, who would set wooden discs ablaze and hurl them into the air, something they did to repel evil, not worship the sun. Holiday points out that many Bronze Age images of discs contain appendages underneath, which to some resemble landing gear. Take the Palace of Darius, a 2,500-year-old structure that is painted with images of discs with legs. It also, to Holiday, does not provide a satisfying explanation for why many of these burial mounds were laid out in bizarre, intentional patterns. They're often clustered around pear-shaped mortuary structures called long barrows. Long barrows held all of their buried bodies on one small location. The purpose of the rest of the structure is, to Holiday at least, unknown. To Holiday, they invoke the modern UFO encounters in which cigar-shaped objects are seen in the sky. As for the disc mounds clustered around them, there are reports of cigar objects 
appearing alongside discs. It is through this lens that Holiday examines Stonehenge in Chapter 9. And let's be clear, everything about Stonehenge is weird. There's not a giant consensus on why it's there, and it's something that it's likely we're going to be debating about it for a very long time to come. As for what we do know, well, it's not exactly clarifying. It took about 500 years to build it, starting in 2600 BCE, and by build it, I mean they kept moving the rocks around. The rocks, by the way, that weigh about five tons each, are a bizarre bluish tinge, and it can only be mined in one spot in Britain that is 135 miles from Stonehenge. And no, we don't know how the stones got there, other than they were brought across Milford Haven via rafts. Other stones were found underwater, giving credence to this. These stones were, these stones, the ones that toppled over the sides of the raft and were lost forever to the waters below, were seemingly replaced by a local type that's only commonality was the color blue. To Holiday, these stones invoke the image of the cloud cigars, a belief he feels is further supported by Stonehenge's location. A great amount of Britain's UFO activity occurs around Stonehenge, and there was a flap there in the mid-60s. He does not disagree with the current theory that Stonehenge served an astronomical purpose, some posit that it was used to track eclipses. He believes that what it was actually built for was to predict appearances of the cloud cigar. Much as serpentine and draconic images of evil can be found in many cultures, there is no dearth of sky gods being linked to pillar-like objects. Moses described the pillar of the Lord, and Fraser told of the Habes of Senegal worshipping their sky god via the erection of monoliths on high cliffs. The Vedic Indi- Indians described Surya as a gem or object that hung in the sky, distinct from the sun and the moon. He can also make a connection between non-disc UFO sightings and Bronze Age art. While there are disc mounds aplenty, there are also bowl mounds, and there are even smaller earthworks of round enclosures containing upright stone figures. These holiday links to the sightings of orb-shaped UFOs. Jellyfish discs seem to be present, too, in cave paintings in Nakmeni. Valet's reports of twin discs circling each other is echoed by the disc barrows when they're viewed from above. Lastly, there are the pond barrows, shallow depressions in the earth containing graves. Holiday suspects that these may either be landing sites or have been dug to mimic landing sites. And remember the discs with legs? They resemble the object described by Lani Zamora and are found all over northern Europe. Many carvings go further, giving them humanoid heads and a phallus. To Holiday, this casts even further doubt on the idea of them being sun discs. Instead, he feels that many of the sky gods were Bronze Age interpretations of the UFO phenomenon and offers support via an analysis of the Bronze Age eye motif. Many cultures in Bronze Age Europe used the eye as a symbol of divine observance, with many towns built around a central grove or well, and many temples being built to resemble an eye when viewed from above. Even pre-Bronze Age, round pebbles were often painted to resemble eyes. Holiday asserts that this is directly related to the modern phenomenon of crafts that resemble gigantic eyes. And that's going to lead us into discussion question number three where we're just going to pause for a minute and check in 
How well is Holiday doing with arguing his case so far? How convincing are we finding the evidence he's laying out for us right now? Um, truth be told, like I think that he, I think he makes interesting arguments. Like I, I think that he makes interesting comparisons. Uh, like the eye stuff that we just that you just went over, I think that's an interesting comparison. But I also don't think a UFO looks like an eye. Yeah. Like so, like I can see where he's coming from, and then thinking about it in the context of they're going to they being uh like the Bronze Age Europeans are going to see that, and then therefore put it into a perspective that they can understand. Under that, I can see how they could potentially see it as eyes. That that I could see that. Sure. Yeah. All right. But ultimately like it isn't to me convincing. It do, that that it doesn't tell me like it's it it feels like a stretch, you know, to say you know, they look like eyes and to their mind, you know, to their minds, it must therefore be why there is so much, you know, including why they would make their towns in the shape of an eye and it's like, or that's just the natural evolution of human sprawl, the way that we do things. Because also, uh, just to point out, so many ancient towns weren't made in the shape of an eye, they were made in the shape of a spiral and things like that, because that's the natural uh, the way that we cro- like the way that we build when we are expanding, um, and that, like theologically, there's actually a lot to unpack there, especially in Celtic culture, because the, the spiral is fucking important in in Celtic culture. But I, it feels like like a lot of these things and what you have to do when you're when you are making an argument like this you're picking and choosing aspects of you know theology mythology whatever it might be in order to try and make your point and i get that i would likely be doing something very similar if i was trying to to do this myself but i just don't think that some of these arguments are convincing if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the eye thing I was feeling a little skeptical on because he, he tried to offer some examples of UFOs that show up looking like eyes, but there was like maybe one or two stories and that wasn't really a motif I remember hearing brought up a lot. Like it, it was one of those things where I kind of went, I feel like if this was a super common way for UFOs to show up, Valet would have talked about it in any of the books that we've read of his, or that seems like something Keel would have gotten super obsessive about. And I don't remember him ever getting crazy about that. And like God, especially with Keel's paranoia, if that he if he kept finding stories over and over again of UFOs that looked like eyes, I feel like he would have turned that into an entire book in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. Oh oh yeah. I, I will say one thing for Holiday. Um, when he talks in here about uh, considering the whole 
fertility cult, mother goddess religion being the predominant thing in Europe, when he calls that bullshit, he's pretty close to accurate for that. That that theory, that theoretical lens has fallen massively out of favor over the last few decades. It was um it was a very romantic idea that was very popular, particularly among feminist theologians for a long time. But in the modern day, like pretty much every teacher I had when I was getting my bachelor's degree was like, this is largely considered inaccurate and the status of women in Bronze Age and uh, medieval, like like pre-Christian pantheons is complicated at best and most likely the 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 uh, primitive mother goddess cult thing that that's largely been thrown in the trash from what I understand. So he is right about that of them saying that that stuff was being painted to look like boobs and vulvas. That's largely been discarded. Yeah. And li- like I said, uh, I'm not li- like I, I don't think his arguments are bad. I, I think that they're I think they're fine arguments. And I think that his point is just as good as many others that we've read on this show. And if anything, the fact that he can make some of these arguments shows just how little we truly know about these topics. That that being said, I just, I'm not, like, on, on its face, I'm not convinced by, uh, 100% by what he's saying, but in a court of law, he's provide, he would, this would be enough reasonable doubt for me. That's a good way to put it is he's creating reasonable doubt and these are holes in the theory that that anthropologists and archaeologists should be making a bigger effort to address. I, and I agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah, I think I, I'm of a similar mindset. I think that um, ultimately, like I said, I'm not I wasn't convinced by what he had to say. What I was I wasn't convinced of his core thesis. What his argument was strong enough to convince me of, though, is that there likely is more to a lot of those elements of Bronze Age culture he brings up than the current traditional understanding indicates. Uh, uh, I, oh, yes. And, well, and also, given our, our conversations about uh, the capital P phenomenon, you know, we would expect that if you dig back into ancient cultures, you'll see certain motifs show up, assuming that it has continued to manifest in the same way to them that it does to us. So, yeah, I could definitely see how, hey, we, we get a lot of, uh, the, it manifests as a lot of these sea serpents around here. Well, that image, even if they don't actually understand what that is, will become a central part of their culture and religion. Because, I'm sorry, you don't live next to a dragon and not make that an important detail about your life. That's a valid point. Uh, and, and so, I, I, I don't, I don't know, like, I could, I could also see the argument being made. Of what if it's not that hol- regarding the discs and them being uh, indications of the sun versus UFOs versus boobs? Um, what I mean, there's to me, there's no reason that those have to be necessarily separate from each other. So, especially if you think about suns and UFOs, the sun is a big fiery disc in the sky. In the a lot of ancient cultures, and you have to correct me if the Celtics were just not about this, personify elements of nature, they become oh, yeah. their gods. Well, Okay, there's a big burning disc in the sky that I believe is the sun god. Three nights later, I'm walking around in my field when a big burning disc swoops by. 
I'm going to think I was just visited by the sun god. There's no reason to say the sun and UFOs were treated as separate entities in their culture. Especially when we know how many of them uh, appear as, like you said, like giant floating red orbs or orange orbs, like the or, one that you saw. Or, or just straight up balls of plasma. Like, what is a ball of plasma? It's a little sun, effectively. So, yeah, I, I don't. I, I, I think that he falls victim of very black and white thinking of, well, that's wrong, so my way is right. I think it's very likely, just like with everything else, it's nuance. It's somewhere in between. Um, I do think that very likely the Bronze Age culture in, in Ireland, Scotland, that whole area, they had, of course, they had contacts with Cabal P phenomenon because I believe that that is an innate part of human existence. That's part of existing in our reality is interfacing with this unknowable other layer that is just constantly around. Yeah. Um, and so it, it makes perfect sense to me that they would have had their own attempts, made their own attempts to understand what they were dealing with, just like we do now. And they were probably no more correct than we were uh, outside of maybe their medicine men and their shaman, the people who were, you know, doing DMT and contacting the gods directly. And maybe they had some more insight or maybe they were just high off their ass. We don't know. Yeah. But, I think the only, the, the only way that we would know is if uh, we were back there at that time. And even then, you know what we'd have more questions. Yeah. Or, yeah. or if, you know, if, if we got those entities to show up on CNN and explain themselves, then we might know. But then it's like, oh, are they lying? I wouldn't believe it. I was going to say, but then, you know, it's it's all going to end up being a manipulation anyway, right? Imagine yeah. if we did get to, like, talk to, like, modern aliens or visitors or whatever we want to call them. And we're showing them this Bronze Age disc art and being like, is this you? Is this meant to be you? And they stare at and they talk to each other for a minute and they go, we don't know. It's like, what? <laughs> Oh, honey, that's as long ago for us as it was for you. Um, and we were under a no contact rule at that point. We were not allowed to talk to you. We could only observe you at like great distances. And we liked watching you make your funny little art, but we're not sure if that was us or the sun or if you people were experimenting with the concept of abstract art already. Mm -hmm. can, can you imagine, though, the, 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 the decades of research and careful study they would get violently hurled out the window. They're like, what, they, we show these aliens a disc. Was this you? And they look at it and go, no, those are boobs. <laughs> that, that would be hilarious. <laughs> We're set right back to fucking ancient mother goddess fertility cult and the Abrahamic religions buried the feminist prehistory. Oh, my God. Oh, God, I have a couple of professors from undergrad who would have active aneurysms. Like, there's one woman I'm thinking of right now that would hurl her chest chair through her fucking office window. <laughs> like, she would be so mad. Just turns out that, no, that was being done to please the aliens. The aliens just really love boobs. <laughs> yeah, that track. Yeah, here comes the mothership, uh, helmed by Captain Tittymaster. Jesus fucking From Christ. Zeta Reticuli. We're ruining the aliens again. They come here because no other species has such voluptuous memories. We're the only ones that kept them around after we evolved. Yep, yep. Even many of the men have them. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I'm down to a B cup. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think that's it for this episode. It is. Please, yeah. for the love of God, let it be it for this episode. I, I, uh, boobs and horse cum. Good times. Good to be back in the studio. You know, uh, I think, uh, I think that, yeah, I think we're done. I think boobs and horse cum is where we draw the line for the day. Not that 
I can't even fucking, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to try and like backpedal my way out of this because I can't. So the, are we ready for housekeeping? The only way out is through deeper into the cum. Housekeeping, <laughs> housekeeping this instant. So if for some fucking reason you liked what you heard, <laughs> then like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening to us on. And if it's Apple or Spotify, leave us a review, five stars. Please. <laughs> We've reached the begging stage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, otherwise, if you want to reach out, you can send us an email, noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com or on social medias on Twitter. We are at noctivigantpod and I am at mixrorywicks. I am at bearish terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have an Instagram, noctivigant underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, noctivigant podcast. We have a Tumblr account, noctivigant podcast. And I believe that that is it. So again, if you want to join us in what we are reading this month, you can and read uh, Goodbye, Hello by Adam Barry. Uh, there's also an audiobook. It's only seven hours long, so you can crush that relatively quick. If you would listen to audiobooks at the speed that I do. Uh, but otherwise, any final thoughts on this first half of this this holiday book? I'm enjoying it. I hope the second half is less sticky. I still th- think those people in Hayham killed a baby. A baby dragon. They killed a baby dragon. Baby dragon. It was only 10 feet long. Yeah, it was a baby dragon. Little. Well, on that note, lead us out of here, Jay. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads. They may be infested with something eelish. Yeah, and don't go crawling through any culverts. You might, you know, drown or starve. Follow the signpost. Yeah, follow the signpost. Don't do it. Don't listen to This isn't Maria J. Imposters. You're the imposter. I am not an eel. Right, that explains all these bones I've been chewing on. Yes, yes. I'm a flesh pedestrian. Yes, yes. Jesus fucking Christ. I'm just really, really hoping Rory doesn't title this episode Boobs and Horsecom because I don't know if I'm going to be able to recover from that. I was literally just about to ask them to do it. I, oh, I don't know.